Hello everyone and welcome on Fitness Logic Radio. I'm your host Nevin Barnett and on today's podcast I have the pleasure to welcome Menno Henselmans. Menno is a world-renowned researcher, physique coach and international speaker on nutrition, training and psychology related to these subjects. He also runs an online PT course for people who want to advance their education on these subjects and I've been running the French version of the course since 2017. Menno is one of the most knowledgeable person I know so I was super excited to have him on the podcast. We speak about some productivity tips from his new book, The Science of Self-Control, before taking a tangent on vaccination. We then dive back into training and speak about high-frequency training and the potential injury risks. Lots of very interesting subjects. I know you will get some valuable information out of this podcast. Don't hesitate to leave five star on your application to help me invite other amazing guests. Have a good listen and enjoy. Hello, Meno. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. Really happy to have you on. Um, I think now most people know who you are and that you were a business consultant and then that you are who you are now and doing what you do now. But can you give us a bit more detail about your transition from a business consultant to personal trainer? When did you actually consider fitness as a career? And because it kind of went against everything you had done until then right i mean we have kind of a similar background like our parents i think have a similar background and if i had said to my parents oh i'm gonna do like i'm gonna be a personal trainer they would have been like no you're not <laughs> exactly yeah, you're gonna be a lawyer or you know a doctor maybe an economist accountant not a personal trainer and um th that changed for me when i was a business consultant and I didn't really have any aspirations to actually have a career in fitness. I just started writing. And that led to people asking me for coaching. And I thought, okay, I, I can do that. You know, I know I know the theory. I've always trained myself, done every sport I could, been strength training for many years now, got my certification where I didn't learn a thing, <laughs> but uh, which only inspired me further to, you know, write about fitness and have an evidence-based perspective. And that went well. And basically just at, at some point I had two full-time jobs. So it was a very, um, what's it called? Sl slow start, lean approach to entrepreneurship. I think it's the, the lean, lean, lean approach generally it's called where you don't make any costs and you make sure that you already have an income stream. And then the reason I originally became a digital nomad to start traveling was actually, well, at this point, you know, I have a decent income stream. What we can do is we can travel to Belize where they speak English and they have uh, very favorable financial laws and uh, a very low cost of living. So we can go there and there I'm sure we can, I can sustain us. And well, things went way, way better than expected. And over time, people even start asking me to how I get the results that I do, which led to the PT course. And over time led to you coming on board with the French version, which is now doing absolutely awesome, I hear. So that's, um, how it all basically grew. It went very organically and just via passion. There was never uh, a grand master plan of to set okay. things up as how they are now. So we had kind of a similar approach in the sense that you were kind of juggling with both and you started coaching people and it started growing. At that one point, you were like, why not just go full on with personal training instead of staying as a business consultant? And yeah. so you didn't really have to tell your parents or your family or your friends that okay I'm just like switching from one day to another it kind of build up did 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 you communicate about that or did you kind of keep it in the background until it was kind of time to to go full on I kept it in the background yeah it was um, I don't think it really it was hard for them at first the uh, the switch and the fact that I also started traveling a lot so I wouldn't see them as much anymore so Did I, I just thought it's my life, you know, it's my passion. I have this opportunity now. I'm, I'm going to regret it if I don't. And most importantly, like it is my life and I want to live it the way I want, not how my parents want. And I've been, this has been a trend that's been going on in my life for years and years. Even at high school, we have these, you can have sort of the, the more beta and the more alpha approach as in, you know, more history and uh, anthropology and stuff, language and the more physics and math. And even then, I was already, I was always in between. 
So I liked, I could do the math, and that's why people always said, you have to do math, you have to do physics, like the most advanced versions. And so I did, but over time I dropped the super advanced abstract physics because it had zero application for me. Well, it, I mean, there's an application somewhere, but um, they, didn't, they didn't tell us. And for example, in, in abstract math, you have to solve problems as in proving that they are, that a certain square is the size of another square. And you can do that purely based on logic, but you can also just measure it where you can just see it, right? And those are things that don't interest me at all. I'm very practically oriented. So I like science. I like, I like numbers when they can confer meaning, like practical, actionable information. So I, I, I dropped those things. And then my teachers, I, it was a big struggle, like my teachers, because I was the uh, valedictorian of my high school. And they were very sad to see their, you know, their, um, their golden boy <laughs> yeah, their, drop all of these subjects. And then when I started behavioral economics, it was similar where, you know, my, my parents were more like, you know, you have to do more like hardcore finance or uh, advanced econometrics. And I was like, I don't, I don't care about any of that stuff. I want something that has to do with people as well. So I did behavioral economics as a bit of a in-between, but I made sure that I did the, the heavy science and the heavy statistics. So I made I a major in statistics alongside it to at least have that as a, as a background. Because I always joke, if you if you study math, you don't learn anything that you're going to use in any field other than math. Uh, basically, it just says you have a resume that says smart motherfucker. <laughs> that's that's pretty much, if you went to like Harvard Mathematics Masters, when people read that, it basically is just a stamp on your resume that says smart motherfucker. Like, <laughs> it's not anything you actually need or so, but... Um, I, I kind of lost interest in math when... It was hard for me to visualize it, you know, when you start doing series and stuff like that. And as you're saying, uh, pure algebra and you like, mm. you don't, you, you can't visualize it anymore. It's, it's too abstract. And I was like, right. no, nah, I'm not interested in that anymore. When you get to four and, dimensions and stuff. Yeah, exactly. I, are you familiar with Dharma? Uh, uh, you know, like uh, the kind of um, the combination of, of passion and what you're good at. It's, it's, I think it's from Buddhist philosophy. And like, uh, sort of next to karma? I, I'm not sure. It's called Dharma. That's what I'm sure of. And it's basically when you combine your passion and your skills to basically find your true, you know, why you, you do what you do. Exactly. Ex your true purpose. Exactly. And you were saying that also as a business consultant, you were kind of missing service. And this is something that is very big that a lot of people speak about is... As when we were in the corporate world, what, something that was really missing for me is, is what you were saying is that I didn't feel that I was useful to anyone direct. You know, we were making money for our companies, but you don't feel when you when you like I, I was more in the contract world because I was a purchaser and we were sometimes making like some great savings, but I never felt fulfilled about it. You know, like we were saving half a million dollar and I was like, OK tomorrow I'm going to do something else and starting coaching, starting helping people, it changed completely my pers perspective of life and perspective of purpose. And I really felt that that was so strong in what I wanted to do is like make a difference on people. Did, did you feel something a bit similar? Definitely. And actually I did a lot of research on what makes people happy in life and get, makes them fulfilled and helping people directly and having feedback from people directly are factors that have huge positive impact influences for example uh, chefs if they get feedback from their customers and uh, people that work um, like bishops and clergy also actually have really high job satisfaction and general happiness ratings because they uh, we can debate about <laughs> whether it's actually helping and everything but they have feedback from people that uh, is very positive so i think it's, it's a huge factor for sure Okay. Um, were, you know, you were saying you were leaving it a bit in the background. Were you a bit, because I know in the corporate world, I was super scared about social media at the time. I didn't want to share anything about my fitness journey. Like most people, because you're in a shirt and, and I'm small anyway. So anyone, no one knew I was like, a, I was lifting or something like that. But were you mm -hmm. also a bit scared of like sharing this, this aspect of your life and telling people like, yeah, I'm passionate about bodybuilding and everyone looking at you being like, 
bodybuilding? What are you talking about? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, actually, I had a friend in, in France that was a business consultant, and, and he said that he had to wear dress shirts and more, um, um, how do you say, clothing that does not reveal your physique, because if he did, he was like, you know, the meathead. And uh, <laughs> he, he, was, he wasn't like bodybuilder big or anything, which is like fit, you know. And that was, that was in France. So, and already you're not eating with your with your colleagues and everything, or you're bringing your Tupperwares and everyone's been like, come yeah. on, stop being annoying, come and eat with us. <laughs> yeah, so I actually usually said that, which is true, I have gluten intolerance, but that wasn't real the reason that I brought my own food <laughs> and everything. Because it just it gets so tiring to explain it all the time. Uh, yeah. I think it's good that you can actually do it. And, and in these social interactions, I often say you have to lead or um, basically detach. Because if you if you do it halfway, it, it's it's not good for either party. People will sort of see it as weakness, and they will try to convince you. But if you have a, a legitimate excuse, that can actually um, sometimes help, especially when you just really don't want to even talk about it to these people. Yeah. So but you just published. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For for, for the, like the, the general question for me, I'm the type of person that maybe wouldn't even have social media, if. And I actually, I still don't really have personal social media. So I really had to very consciously make the choice that uh, I decided very early on, okay, my social media is now part of my business. And I have to get over the fact that I publish things that, you know, maybe like if I post a picture of me shirtless, that I, I would not do that if it wasn't my job. Oh, but yeah. I know that is it, it's a good decision marketing wise for my job. Like people have to see that you, you walk the walk walk the dog so it's 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 a good business decision and it's also actually how i convince myself where it's like you're you know you're using the system correctly and that's what it shows and yeah some people don't see it that way but that's on them and in the meantime you just have to focus on yourself and it's a it's a tool for your business now so yeah. you can see that very early on from my end that there's it's it, it's, it's not a personal social media yeah, it's very counterintuitive at the beginning, like all the filming yourself, taking pictures of yourself, posting. This was like very, very hard for me, for sure. Yeah. Um, so you've just published your book, uh, The Science of Self-Control, which is amazing, by the way. So congrats again. Um, you start the book by focusing on productivity and by giving us simple and easy to implement tips uh, to mm -hmm. kind of hack our human behavior. And one of the productivity tip is wipe bureaucracy out of your mind. And I think this is really in, an interesting subject for everyone, but especially for the French audience, since we have a very strong engraved concept of rules, steps, regimented process in regards to administration. Can you quickly summarize uh, what you mean by bureaucracy so our listeners know exactly what we're referencing to? I think uh, in, in the abstract form, a central concept of bureaucracy is that you are enforcing rules or living by rules without really still knowing why those rules are there. So you're you're in a system, you're following the system, but you're not guided by purpose anymore. It's not like, well, this is what I want to do or what we want to do together. And there's this rule to make sure that we achieve this. That's why we follow the rule. But sometimes the rule persists or the rule doesn't make sense. For example, simple example may be if there's absolutely no traffic at all, should you stop for a red light? I don't. I'm not the, the type of person that I'm just, I walk the street, you know? But if you're a bureaucratic approach would be the rule is if there's a red light, you stop, period. So, and I think, I think there's actually research on, uh, on survey You've data. You've been walking, on, right? Not driving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, driving, driving too, actually. Um, if, if it's like really completely clear that there's absolutely nobody, then I will drive for red light. In fact, I got fined for that, which uh, which I was very uh, salty about because it was literally <laughs> one of those scenarios. It was two o'clock at night in Amsterdam, some remote part of Amsterdam, where you could see in every possible direction that there was absolutely nobody. And I was like, okay, I'm just, I'm just gonna drive. And then it was flash. And it's like $300. Oh, wow. <laughs> Automatic, okay. So, yeah, exactly. So. That's a bureaucratic system. Like the, the flash is, is there and it doesn't care whether that rule still serves a purpose at that time. 
it's, it's just there. And research shows that if you if you have a bureaucratic approach to life or that you're in a bureaucratic system, that you lose motivation to do things because you don't know why you're doing them anymore. You're just following a system here, or you're just a clerk. And kind of autonomously, instead, right? Exactly. You're you're just a, a cog in the wheel instead of an, an agent that makes his or her own path in life. And instead, if you always keep your purpose in mind and think of why you're doing things then people are a lot more productive generally. It doesn't sap, doing things doesn't sap their willpower as much. They're more productive, they're happier. Um, it's just, it's, it's a much better way to live. Okay. And so how do you balance this approach uh, with, you know, accepting some of the irrational decision is decision of government can be making, you know, like how do you choose which battle you want to fight? Yeah, uh, it's best not to fight too many political battles uh, unless it's your job, I find. <laughs> because there are not that many government decisions that are really well evidence-based. In fact, it's uh, something as simple as minimum wage. Most people, like the, the thing is, most people don't get beyond step one. Step one, like minimum wage, for example, right? People think, what does minimum wage do? Well, it means that poor people get paid more, right? Eh. It means there, there's going to be more unemployment. There's lots of economic research on this. Like this is basic economics. What happens if you force people to only hire people beyond a certain threshold of wage? Well, it means that they're not going to hire people anymore below that threshold. So they're not going to hire a lot of people anymore. Instead, they have to think, oh, I'm not going to hire this student because this student's going to be just as expensive as a real worker that's educated and everything. So what happens is the educated worker gets a job instead of the two students, for example. And it's not efficient because the student was willing to work for that wage and the employer would have been more happy paying less, right? So you have two parties that are unhappy and the person that now got a job probably would have been paid similarly anyway. So it, it's not what, um, what economists sometimes call Pareto efficient or generally efficient. I mean, there, there are good things to be said about minimum wage and uh, you know having uh, laws against the extortion of people, etc. But I think it's hard to argue that if people do something consensually, it's extortion. In any case, with these things, with the media and the government, they, they don't even know these things, like very basic stuff. And I think actually it would be very good for society to have a rule that you have to have at least like bachelor level economics if you, you're going to be a politician, if you're going to work in government. If you don't know these basic things, like welfare economics is essentially a study of how governments should rule, like based on logic and, and evidence. But the politicians and most people, media, they don't have this information here. So you're just, you know, you can't even have a good conversation about these things because you're just stuck at step one. Another kind of political question, because I know a lot of people have been asking me recently, is the whole situation with COVID and, and the vaccine. And I know some people like Mike or um, Jeff has have spoken about the vaccine. Uh, I know a lot of people have asked me like, what does Minnow think? Why, what can I know and everything? And so what's what's your position on, on this situation, which is obviously a complex and political situation, but it's always interesting to have the, the opinion of, of people about it. Because you haven't spoken about it on social media, right? Yeah, I've, I've voiced some, uh, some concerns about the lockdowns in some posts. Um, and I think there's there's very strong research, like there are literally about 20 papers showing marginal effects of lockdowns on COVID mortality rates. Because you're just displacing the transmission, right? You, you don't get it at a party anymore, but you get it at a supermarket. So, plus the whole mortality rate is, is so much lower than anticipated and there have been <laughs> lots and lots of problems in any case. Um, with the vaccinations, I think I'm very, I'm very pro-vaccination. I think the vaccines are safe. Um, I'm not very thrilled about the idea of vaccine passports and mandating vaccination, because it's funny that most people that call themselves Democrats these days are willing to do many things that are actually not consensual or not agreed upon by the majority which inherently, if you think about it, makes it non-democratic, right? If a majority Absolutely. of people do not like something, then it's not democratic to enforce it. And if the majority of people want to do something, then why do you need a law to make it happen? 
right? Because yeah. people should be doing it anyway. So for most of these things, I think it's not unreasonable to ask people to just govern themselves like Sweden did. Now you should educate them, inform them, blah, blah. But most people have shown that they're very willing to, to take the vaccines. And um, I think it, it's, it's working well. So I'd say I'm very, I'm very pro-vaccination. I do think that there are some gaps, for example, what if you have natural immunity? There's no research, to my knowledge, showing that it's actually then still positive to take the vaccines. They're also pushing the vaccines for a lot of people. There's some research that, especially age 21 and below, the cost-benefit of the vaccines may be negative because even though they appear to be safe, there's always some potential long-term consequences. mRNA vaccines are generally safe and have been used for a long time, but there have been cases where it turned out that there are actually complications. And if you're really young, your chances of getting or getting a serious case of COVID is very, very low. Like the mortality rate of COVID on, on average, I think is 0.1% in the whole population. And I think about 90% of deaths are 70 plus. So the, the mortality rate in someone, I think there's there's a cutoff point, like based on the last data I've seen, I, I gave up on it because it was just too, too, too uh, depressing. The whole thing but um a couple so this is like a couple months ago based uh, data at least there's like a cutoff point at age 17 or something where the flu is actually or even 21 where the flu is actually more lethal than COVID, just to put things into perspective after that age and especially 70 plus COVID is a lot more lethal yeah so especially you know, if yeah, you have other lethal. risk factors that's why i think a lot of people in fitness were you know pushing kind of against a bit and the fact that it's true that uh, only if I, I mean in France they haven't spoken too much about the fact that if you're overweight, if you have you know like uh, heart problems and respiratory problems, you know based on your kind of your lifestyle, it's something that they don't talk about and they don't push. Which you know we've had COVID since like what February, no, December two thousand nineteen, and still like governments are not enforcing the fact that we need to be healthy as a population, especially against this kind of uh, of pandemics. Do you know that there was a paper published at the end of last year that estimated that the cost of the lockdown-induced inactivity would amount to, I think, 1.5 million lives lost per year? Wow. That's, you know, that's not... A lot of people seem to think this is... Uh, um, sort of a small thing, you know, like inactivity does it, does it, you know, in the long term it matters, but especially for strength training, but no, it matters a lot because there are a lot of people, especially diabetics and people that are obese that are basically always on the verge of being ill and physical activity is what keeps them from stepping over that, that threshold. Plus, if you get like diabetes early on in life, it extends, it decreases your life expectancy a lot. Yeah. And if you like, there are so many statistical problems with the whole media approach about COVID. And one of them is that no welfare economist ever talks about lives lost. You're always talking about quality adjusted life years lost. Because, you know, this. it's nice to say every life matters. Every life is equally important. But logically, it's really not. Like if someone is literally on their deathbed and they're expected, yeah. they're expected to die within two weeks, can you really say that their life is worth as much as that of a child? Of course not. So you have to adjust for both the quality of the life, in some way at least, and the total life expectancy. So you have to talk about quality adjusted life years lost. And um, what's the original question? <laughs> yeah. uh, we got lost in the in the conversation. <laughs> no problem. Um, let's go back to, to the book because there was a few questions I wanted to talk to you about. Like you had also some tips about doing to-do lists um, and organizing uh -huh. yourself to be more productive still. Uh, in the, you didn't speak about how often you do to-do lists. So is it something that you do periodically or you just, as soon as you have a task that you want to implement, so something that's gonna take you more time than just to do it straight away, um, mm -hmm. do you add it to your already existing list? How do you organize in that aspect? Yeah, in principle, a to-do list should be like a calendar, an ongoing thing that, that you're always using. And there may be some things on there for next month and maybe some things pop up for today. And it's really good to, especially if you have a lot of 
tasks and you, you don't feel like you know where to start, that you sort of make it into a list. But overall, it's 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 an ongoing process. Like it's not like you create a to-do list sometimes and then you you delete it. It should be something you you always have, uh, especially in in calendar shape essentially, to to guide your your overall workflow. So you can have also kind of a deadlines and stuff like that, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, perfect. Um, you also speak about the you know limiting the number of projects. Uh, that you work on over a specific period of time. How, how do you personally decide which project to tackle and which project to postpone based on, on your business and, and what you have to do? Because it's true that as an entrepreneur, like I know you're very busy. You, you had your book until now. Uh, you have coaching. Mm -hmm. You have, so we work together on uh, the PT courses. There's a lot of subjects, you know, and sometimes you get a bit overwhelmed and you're like, okay, I have so many things to do. How do you kind of like postpone or choose to tackle straight away? Yeah, prioritizing is a very important skill when you get very busy and you have a lot of projects. Like I also have scientific research. I'm working on an app. Um, so I have to stuff with my book, the PT courses, coaching, uh, then just general reading and um, like interviews and those kind of things, public speaking engagements. So there are always a lot of things going on at the same time, my articles, websites, social media. and I think one one question that really helps a lot is to always ask yourself, what happens if I don't do this tomorrow or today? So first separating what is truly acutely important and what what can wait. And you you also have to put deadlines to things. And you have to distinguish between the absolutely essential deadline and the deadline that's like optimal for your workflow. Because research finds that's actually also something I discussed in the book that Generally, you're best off setting your deadlines with about a third less time than you think. So if you think, oh, I'm going to need about 30 days for this, make it 20. Because you can yeah. probably do it in 20. And if you if you plan 30, you're going to take 30. There's um, quite some, some research on that, that sort of the, the task a time takes sort of fills up to exp or expands to the time you have for the task. And to, to combat that, you can set your deadlines more um, more aggressively. But you still have to note, you know, what, what happens if I don't do this today? What happens tomorrow? Does something go bad? I think that that's a really good initial guideline. And other than that, you you know, you have to have to ask from a business point of view. Like, uh, that's, that's something for me because I do quite a lot of things basically pro bono for, for charity work. But most of the research I do, you have to decide, especially when you're really conflicted, you may have to ditch one project, in the end, you know, you're still running a business. So you also have to ask, like, is this actually profitable? Is this going to improve my business? Or is this something that I'm, I'm really doing just pro bono, just for, for, for charity work? And then if it's charity work, I think it's, it's not unfair to do it only when you have the spare time and it's not causing you excessive stress compared to, to give up something else, a profitable business venture, just to do even more charity work. Actually, uh... You invest. You invest personal money into research. Can you? Do you have anything ongoing at the moment? Stuff that you can like uh, speak about about subjects you're working on. Mm -hmm. We have two studies that have been in the in the making free actually a long time because of the COVID lockdowns. That um, one study on fasted training. That's actually going to be a very extensive one. Basically, going to ask the questions of whether fasted training is okay. And if intermittent fasting can really be ideal for muscle growth, because we have a lot of research on when people are in energy deficit, but very little research on people trying to bulk. But one of the cohorts got completely confounded by the lockdowns. So that was unfortunate, which is, by the way, another cost of lockdowns that many people don't uh, take into account. Like basically the entire scientific enterprise or a, lot of, a big portion of it has been completely destroyed. Many of the studies that were ongoing are just lost. And there's so much research and researchers that are incapable of doing any other research than, than COVID research. So, of course, a lot of research on COVID is needed, but there is a limit, probably. And um, we also have a study that's currently in, in peer review on diet breaks, which is um, probably similar to the, the Jackson Peel study from Australia that was yeah. released yet last year, and it's a better replication of the Matador study, 
the very uh, popular one on die breaks. Uh, short version is uh, we didn't find any benefits pretty much of die breaks. That it turned out to be pretty much a waste of time when you have people that do strength training and um, are familiar with tracking their macros. So when you do a very tightly controlled study and people that either diet, well, essentially is diet for six weeks and one go, or they, every three weeks you take a one-week diet break, then those weeks of diet breaks are essentially essentially a waste of time. They also didn't improve any psychological features. Basically, don't be a pussy and diet hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was... Well, I mean, the, the thing is, if you feel like you really need diet breaks, you should consider that any time you spent on a diet break, you could also spend dieting simply a bit more slowly, right? Like the Matador study was two weeks of diet, two weeks of breaking. So literally as much breaking as dieting time. And then you have to wonder, what if I just cut the deficit in half? You know, is that not simply at least as sustainable and probably more sustainable, also allowing you to keep up the momentum and build sustainable routines and habits, etc. So um, that, that's a cool one. And then we have a paper that's also really cool. It's almost finished with um, uh, Frederik Donstad-Dwarvik, one of my researchers. Yes. We're going to do, a, a, we've done a very thorough systematic review on the effects of carbohydrate intake on strength training performance. And that's also going to be uh, very good, I think. And uh, if, you, if, you've, if you're familiar with my stance on carbs and everything, it's, it's going to be uh, somewhat familiar work. I think there's a massive overemphasis on carbs based on endurance training research that does not apply to strength trainings. Yeah, I think that's that's going to be very interesting. I did speak a bit with Bridget about it. Um, what would you like to see evolve in, in studies and protocols? Like, uh, um, I know most people who do studies are not doing it for our purpose of like meatheads. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's it's always hard to extrapolate the data from it and is there some type of testing or like implementing maybe a bayesian model a bit more in studies what would you like to, to see a bit more yeah i think the thing actually i think that i would like to see the most change in the scientific community is that we start it's twofold it's, it's mostly with master students but in general i'd like there to be more i'd like researchers to be more daring so there's a very strong culture in the scientific community in general to very slowly work up to scientific findings one block at a time with lots of replication studies. And I think there should be more emphasis on A, new things, and B, practical things. And that the, the practical side is something that is due to the disconnect between people that actually lift, basically, and researchers. and that's changing now, fortunately. Like basically, in the, the last decade that I've been in the industry, that's there's been a big change in this, in part because people like Brad Schoenfeld, uh, myself, were involved in both. So that helps a lot. But a lot of researchers spend a lot of time. I mean, if you have a master's student, they have budgets, they have subjects, strength-trained subjects. Are you going to fill in one of the true gaps of the literature, like something that really matters, Maybe see, for example, if two meals a day is optimal for muscle growth. That's still a big question, relevant for a lot of people. You know, one of the more big questions that's still out there, or are you going to do study 733 on whether caffeine can improve performance? It does. <laughs> we, we, you know, it worked the first 700 times. What makes you think it's going to be any different this time? So, you know, that, that's the, with master students in particular, there's this big emphasis on you're going to replicate a very simple design. It's like, no, God, no. You have, if you have subjects, that's, it's, it's rare. You know, you have funding, you have subjects, especially strength-trained subjects that are experienced with macro tracking, then you should do something cool. You should not do something boring that you already know the answer to just because it's an, a theoretical or an intellectual exercise for your PhD or your master. Like, you know, do something worthwhile and make your professor do something make you do something worthwhile. Yeah. And on the statistic sides, because I know you're very good at that, much better than I am. <laughs> so I, I know some people are often, you know, criticizing the way um, 
you know how the data is like uh, processed in, in in studies that is sometimes you know either misleading or you know it's just coming from a a bias from the researcher how can we kind of work to suppress these these issues that sometimes arise yeah i think this is something that's relatively self-correcting like just last year there was a paper uh published um from bill campbell's lab on uh, refeeds and then jackson Peels, um submitted a paper showing that the analysis were done incorrectly and yeah. that actually these were the correct results I think the most important thing here in changing the scientific community would be to possibly enforce that all published data becomes open access. Like if you're going to put a study out there, then share the data. Like, you know, maybe you make some mistakes. That's so be it. People make mistakes. But if you're honest about it and you're willing to, to change it and correct it if needed, that would improve so much because everyone's free to do their own analysis. And if they prefer to do a different technique, then you can do it, you know, and there's merits to be set. You can calculate an effect size many different ways. There are merits to every approach. If you want to do a different approach, well, if people have the data, they can do it. People want to do Bayesian analysis for, instead of frequentist, they can do it. If you have the data out there, uh, it prevents so many problems. You prevent frauds, that people can do their own analyses. You can spot errors. If you have questions, like now, I, I very often email researchers because I have a question that's not reported in the paper. Especially if you look at research that's not specifically about muscle growth, and but they're studying something else. But I want to know, hey, this is cool. What happened to lean body mass? And they just report weight and, for example, some measure of fat loss, or they don't even report the final results. I'm like, that's what I wanted to know. And if they're, the data is just out there, then all of those things solve themselves. So I think that's one of the, the biggest issues, I'd say. Sharing, sharing more data from research. It's true that on past yeah. research, it's sometimes impossible to find anything. Um, Coming back to lean body mass, actually, do you still think that DEXA is a good way of measuring lean body mass in a, in a research protocol, for example? In a research protocol, it's not ideal, but for practical purposes, it's really good. Like the, the general error rate is, is around 1%. Now, it's not perfect, and there are some cases where people have really different readings. Now, on social media, you can see a lot of people that have really off readings, but what you often see. Yeah, you, you see sometimes people at around 10% body fat and they come out at like 16 and you're like, wait a minute, that's not possible. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of those cases, people are non-natural trainees. So DEXA scans are calibrated often even on sedentary individuals, which assumes a certain proportion of body that's water, etc. And if you have someone on, on steroids or androgenic anabolic um, androgens in general, uh, other performance enhancing drugs, almost all of them can mess with hydration status. The DEXA scan is not calibrated for that. And the fact that it doesn't work on that individual does not mean it's not good for, you know, most natural individuals. So that, that's, I think, on social media, you may get the idea that they're worse than they actually are. And yeah, there are some cases, I've, I've, I've had some cases where I just outright dismissed, basically, the DEXA scan, where I was just like, this, this is so far out there that I don't know what was wrong. Um, there are a few reasons, you know, measurement error, the, the speed of the, um, the, uh, the, how do you call it? it basically, it, it makes sort of rays, and it does that at a certain speed to take the scan. The frequency. And yes, if you, yeah. if you change that, then it can alter the results. And also the calibration sample for the test can affect things. And there's just uh, computational errors, uh, manual errors. So, you know, some, I think it's still seen as a as a gold standard for the replication aspect, right? It's like if you be, if you put the same mm -hmm. person two or three times, it's gonna be the same number that comes out. And that's that's why it's still used widely and thing still seen as like a precise in that sense. Yeah, you can measure reliability in a few ways. And one of those is called test retest reliability. And that's exactly what you say. If you do a test and you do another test, you get the same result. Because if you can't even satisfy that criteria, and it's like, <laughs> what is it actually measuring, you know? Exactly. <laughs> so um, that is a big one, and DEXA score is pretty good on, in that regard. Um, and I think it's it's relatively affordable, too, you know, and relatively simple. Like, underwater weighing is also really good, but <laughs> have you seen those things? You have to get into one of those, uh, get a, especially, it feels like you're, you're being sort of sucked into the matrix, you know, like the humans that are 
submerged in water in those tanks. Oh, that, that, that's like underwater way, not for everyone, you know. <laughs> I've never tried it. I, w I would really like to do a water way. It's mm -hmm. yeah. Um, let's get a bit more on the side of uh, of training. Uh, you are kind of known as the high frequency guy now <laughs> across uh, the internet. Mm -hmm. um, high frequency training is very interesting uh, for several aspects. It seems to you know push your body to recover better. You have less uh, DOMS. Uh, tell me if I'm mistaken, but most re research we currently have shows that an advanced lifter could theoretically train a muscle group every 24 hours. But this is mainly based on myo-MPS and performance output, right? Yeah, not so, even myo-MPS, mostly just mixed muscle protein synthesis. Yeah. Uh, but, but a lot of studies too. But what about recovery tissue? Your, your muscle might have recovered, but not your connective tissue. And this could become problematic with higher frequency training because we know that mm -hmm. overall volume is the main driver for hypertrophy. Wouldn't it be more conser a, con a more conservative approach to reduce frequency if in, even if you progress slower, but on the, on the long term? Yes. The, the thing with um, injuries, is that we don't really have good data on what what like RCTs like experimental trials on like high versus low frequencies see who gets injured the most. You know, it's it's one slightly unethical, and two many people just don't get injured. You know, if you do it in eight weeks, maybe nobody gets injured. You wasted a study. But based on the data we have on injuries, mostly survey data, cross-sectional data, you can see that frequency actually does not predict training frequency, as in how often per week do you train a muscle group, does not predict injury risk. What does predict injury risk is volume. So if you go from free, or if you go from upper lower, upper lower, and you make that four times full body, and that results in you simply doubling your training volume because you're now training the whole body every time instead of half the body with the same volume you do otherwise, then you're definitely going to increase your injury risk. Probably also increase your gains, which you know proportion to results to injury risk may be acceptable, but it's the volume that drives the injury risk. And as you said, some indicators, at least testosterone to cortisol ratio, and at least one study on, on DOMS, which may reflect muscle damage, suggest that higher training frequencies actually improve muscular recovery, and at least one Norwegian study on uh, neuromuscular fatigue as well. So there are some indications that if anything, re recovery improves, and we know that active recovery actually works. So if you're generally just being active but not training something so hard that it's possibly injurious that generally also improves especially because it improves blood flow improves the connective tissue uh, rates of uh, recovery for example a lot of people have experienced that when they have a severe injury and they take a full week off it's like nothing happens like they're also not really improved so being somewhat active can actually help a lot now the thing with what really practically makes high frequency training dangerous, I think, is that every single day you have an opportunity to mess up. If you have injured your elbow and you know you've done push day that week, and that's it's only pushing exercises that aggravate the elbow, then you're good for at least a week. Maybe if you on the first set of your bench presses on Monday you realize ah does not feel right, you skip the rest of that day. That means that you've had a whole week with just one set for the elbow and no more opportunities to mess up. But if you do a full body approach, and Monday you realize that, okay, maybe you skip Monday, but then Tuesday, most of us meet as we go in and during push-ups, we think, I can try it. And then, mm, not quite. And on Tuesday, we think, military press, different exercise, I can try it, mm, not quite. <laughs> and then two weeks later, you know, every time, every day, we basically, we've, we've had that, and we're just continuously aggravating, and we think, it's high frequency stuff, it doesn't work. But it's not the high frequency. It's, it's the fact that you're aggravating it all the time. I think another problematic aspect is when you look at successful trainees, you know, like the fact that we push ourselves at the gym is why we are kind of successful. And mm -hmm. with this injury approach, the fact that you have to really step back and basically do active, you know, rehab it, that means that working at you know 50 60 percent of your your weights and and sometimes you just like want to push it and that's why it's i feel that it's very hard for a lot of people not to as you say 
re-injure themselves and even worsen the situation over time because they have this high frequency and every time they're like oh i'm just gonna go easy and then you you get into that mindset of like oh i'm in the gym like i just want to push some weight and it's mm-hmm. it's very complicated i feel and i've i've kind of taken a, a bit of a step back on the frequency because i've realized that with people i was working with sometimes this is the problem that i was facing you know people i was telling them like no but if you have a nagging pain if you're feeling something we really need to take a step back and you really need to take some time off and they were like yeah yeah okay like don't worry like that's what i'm going to do and i realized that as you say they were kind of hurting themselves just a tiny bit but just enough for them not to recover and then you basically have chronic pain that installs and they always have pain and that kind of become the new normal and then it's mm-hmm. really complicated to 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 get away of this situation because it, it it takes much more time then right yes i think in general the more you push volume the more aggressive you should also be with prehab. So as soon as you notice someone has any pain at all, especially if it's biomechanically plausible overuse, for example, if you're getting goldfish elbow from bench pressing, this is very common, or from skull crushers in particular, very, very common, then you should stop immediately. Like the rep you feel it is the rep you stop. And that workout, maybe later you can retry it, depends on how bad it was. But if you notice it again, that's just instant stop, school crushers are out. Probably all the other presses, they go up to 30 RM. Tempo goes to controlled. Maybe you reduce training volume, ideally not, but you have to immediately make the program sustainable again. Like as, as quickly as possible, go to a sustainable pro- training program. So you ideally don't have to compromise on training volume while you can keep training without aggravating the injury. And if you do that, often you basically take care of 99% of issues probably just at once, but people have to learn that because I still, I have it in bold and repeat it in my documentation that I sent to clients, don't train through pain. And very often I still get an email. I say, and when I asked before, it's like, no. And you, you really have to be specific. Like you have to ask, I'm not asking if you can train through it. I'm asking if there is, like if there exists a level of discomfort of some. And they're like, yeah, and then it turns out, actually the last three weeks they've been training for pain and now it's really bad. Like now they feel it in their car when lifting uh, a glass to drink water. So yeah, then now it's a serious problem and you need to be even more aggressive with how you tackle it. As you just said, I know you prefer to basically keep the same volume, but use different modalities or like uh, swapping mm-hmm. exercise and, and etc. When do you kind of consider basically reducing either frequency to leave more time between, you know, the occurrence or, or just like reducing volume? Because, you know, we can always swap exercise, but there's one point where is it really the exercise which is the problem or is it the volume and the recovery status of the person? How, how do you kind of judge that? Yeah, it's always an interaction, basically, because almost any exercise, like school crushers for me, wreck my elbows. But I, I could do like school crushers at 30% of 1RM, 10 reps to failure. I could probably do that maybe even every day, you know? So it's, it's always a certain threshold of volume that you tolerate. But for school crushers, basically one, one hard set, good chance next day I have elbow pain, maybe even that, that workout. So, you know, it's, it's really bad. But if I do supinated grip pushdowns or school overs, I can do that with a lot higher volume. So you have to, exercise selection is really, really important, I think. Um, more important even than training volume, I would say, in general. At least, especially if you're more like bodybuilder, like you have flexibility. Like if you're a powerlifter, the, the, and powerlifters get injured way, way more, like um, several times, sometimes up to 10 times more than bodybuilders because they have those free powerlifts. And it's like, what are you going to do? Are you not going to do the bench press? Like, well, sometimes you have to, but that should really be the absolute last resort, right? They start pressing and, with like a, about 40 centimeters of, uh, of wood, yeah. you know, just to reduce the... <laughs> Exactly. So the, you have limited options in that regard. But if you can change exercises, 
think that that's really, really important. And I have some programs, especially more advanced trainees, you're, they're not benching, squatting, at least not back squatting. Maybe they're front squatting or split squatting and not doing like conventional deadlifts. And you have to sort of get out of that mindset that you have to do certain exercises because over the long run, it really pays off to um, rotate more through different exercises. Okay. Um, do you think that too much optimization and re relying only on measurable outcomes within our training detaches us from actual feelings? I, I know you don't like the mind to muscle connection, but there's still kind of, you know, we still go to the gym to kind of feel and our muscle working or are we just biased and we shouldn't listen to ourselves anyways? I mean, feelings certainly have worth. The thing is, there's so much research showing that our feelings are not good indicators of what to do and that we systematically overemphasize our feelings. In fact, evolutionarily speaking, you can say that literally the entire top of our heads, the entire prefrontal cortex has evolved to fix the problems that the much smaller uh, paleomammalian brain that's like uh, closer to the brainstem gives us those problems. And it needs this whole new area to make sure that it doesn't mess up too often and that it allows us to go from, you know, like primates in the wild, which are really successful. You know, they're, they're still there after a lot of time. They, um, so evolutionary speaking, they are successful, but as humans, we are ridiculously successful in evolutionary terms. In fact, we're so successful that we're probably going to be our own downfall at some point because we're just overpopulations. Eventually, uh, probably the biggest threat to our extinction. So that's because of rationality that we are so successful. So I'm, I'm, I say yes, of course. And there's actually research that feelings can have uh, use. But overall, you know, it's 90% of the time it's we need more reason, not more feelings. But I'll share one interesting study where it showed that uh, where feelings actually make better decisions even than reason. One study looked at the uh, if you're buying a painting and then you can either instruct people to just, you know, just look at the paintings, see which one you just makes you feel best. That's the one you get. Or you have people think, which painting are you going to get? Like, you know, look at the aspects, the different aspects, compare them, contrast, make a reasonable decision. And this is something that there are so many unknowns and our feelings are actually are pretty good. Like there is something we can intuitively, we can amass so much more information, process so much more information that we actually can consciously, and then we can make a choice that we have no idea why we made that choice, but there is something going on there that actually works and, and pretty well. But in, this is a scenario where we basically cannot make a reasonable choice. And in fact, what you're measuring, you're, you're measuring subjective enjoyment for the painting. And that's better when you make the choice subjectively. But if you were, you know, if you're working in an art gallery and you have to buy paintings to sell them, well, I think you're going to want to do some uh, analyses and, you know, some market analysis of what kind of paintings are in demand and what sells well, what's for what prices, you know, to, to make that choice. That's very interesting. Um, last year you were living with uh, Mike Israel, right? Uh, during the, the, yeah. the lockdown, I think. Um, did training and living with him kind of influence you in, in any way, regards to your training, regards to your diet, uh, or any other subject? Like, it, it's true that I, Every time I am with, because uh, Mike is not, uh, he's pretty open about his uh, PED uses and stuff like that. And, mm -hmm. and I know that when, so here I had some friends who were like, you know, pro bodybuilders. So obviously they're all like uh, juicing and, and it does influence you because it, it kind of normalize it. You know, you're, you're kind of the outsider, like not taking PEDs. Did it did mm -hmm. it have a, an impact on you or something like that? Or on your training, your diet, anything? Well, you have to watch out for body dysmorphia. Um, that, that's the one thing for sure. Uh, I'm not sure if you want to go into, into that topic or more like the training nutrition side. I think um, in terms of like scientifically, we uh, had a lot of really good discussions. Again, a lot more respect even than I already had for Mike. We became, I think we're really good friends now, I would say. Uh, I like him a lot. 
so much that we actually mostly talk about other things like politics and philosophy. We share many, many more things there than we do about nutrition or exercise science. But one thing that I would say influenced me the most is the effectiveness of bulking. Because yes, they are on PADs, but a lot less than you would think or than I originally thought. So one thing that um, in, in part also I learned from sort of, you know, came together at that point, what I've seen in, in my own PAD using clients is that it, they help a lot with bulking, but really not that much with cutting, it seems. So at least not with fat loss and, and, and even muscle retention, they don't seem to do that well. It's more that they allow you to start off with a really good base. And that also inspired me myself to look more into bulking um, because they spend a lot of the time bulking and even, for example, it doesn't matter if you're on PADs or not, like the, the max you can attain, there's a certain max and on PADs it's larger. But still, if you don't increase the dosage, you're going to plateau at some point, right? And I found with them that you can actually bulk really, really long, really, really long on a given dosage. So that also inspired me to um, to keep bulking. I was actually, so like I said, it was all coming together because I was at that point already bulking for about six months. But that was the first time in a, in a long time that basically continued that bulk for, um, well, basically until now. And I would say that I'm a bit bigger, like I'm one to two pounds bigger, which <laughs> may not sound like much, but that was after years of no gains. Um, and, you know, while eating basically double the calories on average that I used to before. So that's a huge win-win. Yeah, we, we kind of started bulking kind of the same period. I started around uh, June or July 2019, and I'm still I'm still putting on weight. And I know that theoretically you kind of always want to be in that eight to fifteen percent body fat uh, body fat th threshold, right? To mm -hmm. to kind of have a favorable P ratio. And do you think you've you've pushed beyond that to really try and gain some size, or are you still kind of in that range of of body fat? Why didn't you do it before? Yeah, probably mostly because I had simply given up. On, on building more muscle. Uh, I was pretty convinced that I was at my natty max, but I find that now the natty max is a bit more flexible than, um, than I thought. So that, that that's the main reason personally for me. Um, and do you think you, you were trying to, do you, do you think you were trying to maintain a certain amount of leanness and that's that was Definitely. hindering your progress in a way? Definitely and while doing it on two meals a day. Like the past years before that, I was basically all on two meals a day and sort of- Yeah, I remember cutting massive meals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So now I'm usually on, on three, three to four and uh, I have much more lead build periods. Basically I do more what I always did with my clients, which you often find as a coach, right? Uh, you have to really treat yourself as a client in every regard. Because if a client also told me you're, you're you're at your 90 max, and I would say, you know, I've heard that a thousand times before. Let's see. <laughs> and it can be true, but uh, very often it's not. Yeah. Okay. I have so many questions, but I know that you're kind of uh, uh, short on time. So for the last question I, would, I wanted to ask you, to ask you is, what is, uh, in your opinion, the number one tip people should implement to change their lives for the better, either from your book or from you know, your general <laughs> philosophy. <laughs> yes. And actually for uh, people, French people who've listening until now, uh, we will have a French version of the book that we're currently working on it. So I'm super excited to, to, you know, give the mm -hmm. opportunity to French people to, to dive into that book because it's, it's really awesome. Definitely. So I would say buy the French version of the book. If you're French. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For sure. No, it's it's good hands because I actually I, I looked at translations in a lot of languages, but I know that with you guys you can you can translate both the science effectively and also still make it fun to read and just have a nicely edited, you know, pleasantly pleasant to read book. And that I think is a, has been my main problem with translating to other languages because there are a lot of requests, but even the audiobook version, which is now almost finished was very difficult because you have a certain writing style and you can't just read out the whole book, right? So you have to you have to edit it and make it uh, still nice. Otherwise, 
it's not just a matter of the reading experience, but research actually also shows very strongly that the ease of which information is um, processed by the brain influences retention a lot. That's why bolding text, for example, actually works. Like if you bold text, people believe it more. And uh, which is why those ads, why they do it, you know, like 50% discount, 50% bolded, then it actually appears like a larger number in your brain because it's easier to process and people are actually more likely to buy it. So in this case, yeah, you know what you should buy. <laughs> Great. Um, I think we'll do another episode because I have so many more questions. Sure. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast. And uh, if you have any last words to say, like uh, the, the floor is yours. Farewell, my friends. <laughs>